0: Good morning, church. We are opening our Bibles to the book of Revelation this morning. We are blessed to have a twofold opportunity to study this book in this next quarter. We're going to be studying the book of Revelation in our quarterly lessons, and we're going to be studying the book of Revelation at least in every sermon that I'm going to be giving. So we'll really be able to dig into this book. Now, the thing about the book of Revelation is that it is... The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first verse of this incredible story, which is a story that kind of summarizes the rest of the Bible. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament of the Bible, but it's a very different book. It's written in symbolic language. It's written in symbols that are very difficult at times to decode, to understand. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to simply take the book of Revelation and try to understand at least the theme of the book, which I believe is found in the introduction to the book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand that theme, we have to understand that name. Names are very significant. In the Bible, people are named many times in relationship to their character. For example, Jacob which happens to be the Hebrew equivalent of James, my name, the word Jacob means deceiver. And Jacob did just that. In his life, as he moved through it, he came to a place where he was so anxious about his future and so anxious about his inheritance that he deceived his father into blessing him instead of blessing Esau. So he lived out his namesake. But then, Jacob went through this remorse and this transition, if you will, and he became a different person. He wrestled with God about his past, about his guilt. And through that whole process of wrestling with God, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Now the name Israel means one who prevails with God. So names are significant. The name Jesus is really significant. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was told by an angel to name her son Jesus. Do you know why? Because of the meaning. And we find that meaning in the book of Matthew, chapter one and verse 21. This is what it says there. You, Mary, this is an angel from heaven, will call his name Jesus because he is going to do something very significant. He's going to, does anyone know? Save his people from their sins. That's what he's going to do. And that's why you need to name him Jesus. Because he's going to be the Savior. Now, Christ, that word, that name, means the anointed one. It refers in the Jewish mindset to the Messiah, the one who is going to be anointed as God's deliverer. So when you take the name Jesus Christ, the meaning of that is the one who saves his people from their sins through anointing power, the messianic power of God. So this book, the book of Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of the one who would save us through the power of God. And that becomes really clear, crystal clear. As you enter into the book, it becomes really clear that this book is all about what Christ has done and does for us and not about what we do for God. Which is, in a sense, very significant for us, especially as Christians, as believers, as Seventh-day Adventists. Because many times we get that turned upside down. We start thinking that religion is about how we please God and what we do for God and how we live for God and we forget that that's simply the fruit. That's what, what happens as a result of understanding what God does for us through Jesus Christ. And so the book of Revelation is here to remind us of this fact. The book of Revelation isn't actually all about end-time events, per se. It's not really about the beast and the mark of the beast and the dragon. That's not the prophecies that happen to be contained in this book. That's not the major theme. That is all there to give us a context of what the book is really about. That's why the book of Revelation opens up with this first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, doesn't open up with the revelation of the beast or the revelation of the dragon or the revelation of all of these end time doom and gloom events. Its focus is Jesus Christ. Now, because Jesus is the one that has been predicted and fulfilled the prophecies of saving us from our sins through the power of God, through the anointing of God, that has made the enemy of Christ and of God very unhappy. And so what we have in the book of Revelation is we have this picture of what God has done for us and is doing for us, and then we have all of this counterfeit, all of these attacks that are being made against that picture of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And that's where we get some of the doom and gloom from. The doom and gloom of Revelation, the activities of the beast and the dragon and the enforcement of the mark of the beast, and and the ideas that we have of eschatological prophecy, that is end-time prophecy, all of that is in here to help us to understand how the enemy is seeking to undermine what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. But the main focus of the book of Revelation that God wants us to be aware of is Jesus. Jesus, Jesus Jesus, Jesus, again and again and again. In fact, God waits until we get halfway through the book before he even introduces us to the dragon. The dragon is not even mentioned in Revelation chapters 1 through 11. Not even there. And there's something else that isn't there also that I think is really significant. And I'm going to say this and then try to explain it. The other thing that isn't mentioned in the first half of the book of Revelation is Is the law of God. The commandments. And people who keep the commandments. You won't find that mentioned until you get to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. It's not mentioned in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter, it's not mentioned. And the reason it's not mentioned is because this is where we have our hang up. As fallen human beings who get religious, It's easy for us to fall into the the way of relating to God that, that everyone naturally relates to God. And that is, if I do something for him, he'll do something for me. If I obey him, he will like me. He will love me. He will favor me. And that's just not the way the gospel works. The gospel actually takes us where we are, as we are, and shows us the favor of God that comes to us before we do anything favorable toward him. That's what the gospel is really all about. And we see this as we open up Revelation chapter 1. Because the first thing we see in Revelation chapter 1 is this picture of Jesus coming to John on the Isle of Patmos. Now when Jesus comes to John, he comes in a form that is amazing. He, He comes in an appearance that we could call glorified. The picture is so dazzling to John that he falls down and he feels as though he's going to die. It's so overwhelmingly beautiful that he feels overwhelmed by it. And he contrasts himself with that of Jesus and he feels like he has no life, no way of standing before, before God. And this is, in a sense, a picture of us. Now, John didn't necessarily do what we do sometimes when we come in contact with the beauty of Christ, He didn't try to hide. He didn't run. He didn't try to excuse or justify, like Adam did in the Garden of Eden when God came to him and said, hey, what are you doing? Well, I was afraid and I hid myself, covering myself with fig leaves. John simply falls down before Jesus and waits for the words to come from Christ. And the words that come from Christ in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying unto me, fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. See, our natural tendency, even as religionists, is to be afraid of God. Did you know that? We naturally tend to be afraid of God. And we hide. And a lot of times we hide through an appearance of goodness of doing good things, or acting a certain way. In our hearts, we're far from God. In our hearts, we are, in a sense, fallen. Our thoughts and our feelings are far away from the things of God, things that are good and true and pure and right and holy. We're thinking about other stuff. Our minds are scattered all over the place, but we're here, in a sense, because we're afraid. Our natural tendency is to be afraid of God, and John, understand this, John, who was a faithful disciple for three and a half years, and then beyond that now, he's moved all the way through his life to the very end of time. The Romans have tried to kill him. Emperor Domitian put him in a cauldron, in a pot of boiling oil, in order to make him a martyr. And as John went into that cauldron, he suffered for me a cruel death. He said to those who were there, My Lord suffered for me a cruel death on the cross, and I find it an honor to suffer for him. He went into the cauldron, and nothing happened. And so he was taken out, and he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. And there he is, in a sense, faithful to God all the way, Nothing in John's life could even compare to the way we live. John was just absolutely dedicated and devoted. And when Jesus shows up, John says, I'm afraid. What makes us think that we would do any better than John in the presence of God? And why should we be any less available to the words of Christ? Fear not. In other words, it's not about what we've accomplished or who we are. It's all about what God is to us. And the longing he has to take away our fear. Because that fear, according to John, will always be there when we come into the presence of God. All the way to the very end, we're going to see holiness and righteousness and goodness. And we're going to contrast that with ourselves, no matter how good we've been. And we're going to realize, man, this is scary. I don't think I can stand before God. And the truth of the matter is, according to Revelation chapter 1, we can't stand before God. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. We need Jesus, the Christ. The book of Revelation identifies that need. So if you've come here this morning thinking or wondering or questioning whether you are good enough to come into God's presence, Just look at the example of John. He wasn't good enough. And if you come here this morning thinking that if I just get my life right, that I could just get my ducks in a row, that if I could just do all the things that God is telling me to do in his word, then I could be good enough. Look at the life of John. I think he had his ducks in a row pretty much. And still in the presence of Jesus Christ, he needed the words, fear not. Fear not. John was overwhelmed with the same humanity that all of us possess. And sometimes we just give up and we say, well, forget it, there's no way I can ever please God. Well, let me this morning point you to the picture of revelation that is so beautiful and so significant. The revelation of Jesus Christ that we have a Savior who takes care of that very fear that we have of never being able to measure up. The book of Revelation pictures Christ in chapter 1 standing among these candlesticks. And these candlesticks in a sense, are the first symbol in the book of Revelation, a first significant symbol. These candlesticks are symbolic of, it. it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, in the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, the stars are the angels or the messengers or the ministers of the churches, and the seven candlesticks, this is the last verse of Revelation chapter 1, which you saw are the seven churches. Those seven candlesticks represent seven churches. Now you might ask the question, why seven? Like, Seven? Well, seven is, in, in, in the book of Revelation, seven is a, is a magical number in a sense, a significant number. Seven represents complete and perfect. It is all-inclusive. That's where we get our week from. Our weekly cycle comes from creation. It doesn't come from the stars. It doesn't come from astronomy. It doesn't come from anything but creation week of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that creation week identified these seven days and the seventh day was identified as the day when God finished, completed, and rested from all his work which he had done. Finished, completed, perfect, done. That's what seven represents. And it's used all the way through the Bible and especially in the book of Revelation. There were way more than seven churches in John's time. There were dozens of churches. Philippi isn't mentioned in here. There was a church in Philippi. Colossians wasn't mentioned here. There's a church in Colossia. But John specifically has shown seven churches as a representation of all of God's people. The complete perfect sum of the entire group of churches. Not just in John's time, but all the way to the end of time. In other words, you and I are included in the picture... Of the seven churches. Where are we? Well, according to prophetic history, if you roll it out year by year, starting in the early apostolic time, because John was told these things are things which must shortly come to pass. If you roll it out, you come all the way to the very end of time, to our time. And in our time, we are living in the age of the Laodicean church. You heard of the Laodicean church? It's a really interesting church. It's unique in a sense. The Laodicean church, which represents our age, our time, is a church that feels like it is rich and increased with goods and needs nothing. A very spiritually wealthy church. It's a really good description of evidence because we have so much knowledge and so much information and so much understanding of so many things spiritual that we could actually start resting upon that and losing our dependence upon Jesus. Now, it's a church that Jesus identifies as making him want to throw up. It makes him sick to his stomach, this church, because it feels so rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. And at the same time, it doesn't realize it's miserable, wretched, blind, poor, and naked. And Jesus even says it this way. He says, you know, I wish I would rather have you cold or hot. That'd be nice. Cold, I'd rather have you in the world than me in this lukewarm state. Which is the point we're making here, and it's a very important point. There is nothing we can do in this world. There is no way, there's no knowledge we can gain, and there's no nothing we can contribute and give to God to make to change the fact that we need Him, Jesus Christ, to be our Saviour. We cannot and will not ever be able to save ourselves and there's no way we can ever stand in God's presence no matter how good we are and think that we're going to fall on our face and say, ah, I'm lost. Because as soon as we come into God's presence, we see the selfishness, the wretchedness. The only way we can cover that up, at least if you're in the latest seeing is to pretend that you've got all your ducks in a row and be in this self-deceived state, which makes God sick, because then He can't do for us what He needs to do. But here's the beautiful picture of Revelation chapter 1, and we're just looking at the big picture now. Revelation chapter 1 pictures Jesus standing among these churches, all of them. Now, when you look at the di- different description of the churches, you're going to find that some of these churches are in really bad condition. There's a couple churches, though, that are actually, well... One church is called the Church of Philadelphia, and it's that, that phrase there means brotherly love. And Jesus doesn't really have anything negative to say about that church. There's another church, the Church of Smyrna, that's going through a lot of persecution, and Jesus doesn't really have anything negative to say about that church. In other words, there are times in our Christian experience when we can find ourselves living in a way that really pleases God. And yet, the picture of Christ among the churches tells us that God's love for us and God's love for those who may not be pleasing him or may not be where they should be or ought to be is the same. The picture of the seven churches tells us that God is with all of his people no matter where they are in their Christian experience, that God loves every single one of those churches, and he's willing to be real with them. And that's what I love about the seven churches. It's reality. Jesus says to us, you're doing some good stuff, but I have something else I need to share with you. It's, it's a picture of affirmation and correction. Affirmation and correction. And you know how hard it is to be corrected? My wife at times will remind me how difficult it can be, at least for a guy. Uh, honey, I really wanted to share something with you. I just, like, uh, not now. <laughs> When's a good time? When I'm sleeping. Write it in a note. <laughs> There are times when we we are reluctant to be corrected. What Jesus does, and I think it's beautiful, is he tells us, listen, I've got some things I want to share with you, but before I share that with you, I want to affirm you. You're doing this, 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 and this really well. Now, there's one thing I want to tell you, and God loves us enough to tell us those things that are hurting us and hurting him. Even though he knows, maybe, it's going to be difficult for us to handle that. What's really interesting about the Laodicean church is that it's the only church of the seven that God has nothing good to say about. Philadelphia, He has nothing negative to say. Laodicean, He has nothing good to say. But the, but the one thing He does say to the Laodicean church that He doesn't say to any other church is, "I love you." I love you, and I and I appreciate that because because a God who loves is a God who's going to talk to us straight. Many times the opposite of love is not hate, but it's indifference. The fact that we're indifferent to people tells us something worse than just hate. It tells us we just don't care. And God never communicates that in the book of Revelation. He cares. He cares enough for us to think of him in ways that hurt his heart, that he's legalistic, overbearing, arbitrary, controlling, mean, doesn't want us to have fun. Whatever it is, whatever picture of God we get, He's big enough and He's loving enough to handle that until we actually come to a place where we understand that the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, loves us greater, more, so much that He gave His life for us, that He gave Himself for us, in the person of Jesus Christ. So where do we find Jesus Christ? Where do we find this Savior who's anointed with the power of God, the Savior who came to save us in the book of Revelation? He's all through it. It starts in Revelation chapter 1 and at least through the seven churches where we see Jesus Christ among us in spite of all of our weaknesses and faults and failures. We see the same picture all through his life. He came and he sat with publicans and sinners. He hung out with the Samaritan woman. He talked to Zacchaeus. Even though people judge them and criticize them, he came close to them. The woman at the well had five husbands, five divorces, living with a guy now, not even married to him. And Jesus said, hey, I've got something for you. She didn't have to get her act together before Jesus came to her. Jesus came to her as she was. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation pictures a Savior that comes to us as we are, meets us where we are, but refuses to let us stay as we are without saying something to us. Trying to open up our hearts by opening up His heart. Trying to meet our needs and communicate to us what we need from Him by showing us what He needs from us. And sometimes we get that turned around and we think, oh, what he needs from us, that's what we got to focus on. No, he's simply saying, I've created you to be in my image and I want to restore you to that image. And that's where you're going to find your greatest joy and happiness. Is in being as I am, as I created you to be. So Revelation chapters uh, 2 and 3 are all about the churches. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 introduce us to another picture. And this picture is phenomenal. This is a picture of a book that is written on the inside and the outside that's sealed up with seven seals that no man in heaven and no man in earth and no man under the earth can open. And in a sense, this book is the title deed to planet earth. In a sense, this book represents your history and my history. And it's sealed up because in a very real sense, our destiny, our future is sealed and cannot be changed. It cannot be altered, at least by not by any man in heaven or earth or under the earth. And when John sees this book in the right hand of him that sits on the throne and he realizes that no man can open it, he begins to weep uncontrollably because he understands the implication. The implication is, is that we're lost and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And as John is weeping over this situation, an elder comes to him and taps him on the shoulder and the elder says, weep not. And then he directs him to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah who has prevailed. And John begins to dry his eyes and he looks around for this lion of the tribe of Judah. And what he sees as he looks around is not a lion, but he sees a lamb. Now these are symbols again. This particular story, this particular framework right here in Revelation chapter 5 introduces us to a symbol that is going to be used through the rest of the book of Revelation. It's a vital symbol. It's the symbol of the lamb that was slain. Revelation chapter five and verse six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and in the midst of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now we're going to stop with this symbol. We're just going to take it and identify it, just like we did with the name Jesus Christ, and we're going to run it through Revelation, and that'll be the end of our introduction to this book. First, the symbol, a lamb. The lamb throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, was the sacrifice that pointed to the Messiah. The lamb was the ultimate sacrifice, and it was supposed to be without blemish. You could not take a lamb that had any kind of blemish and take it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice for sin because the, the unblemished lamb was to represent the perfect life of Jesus. And the only way we can be saved is by the perfect life of Jesus. Because you and I don't have a perfect life to compare with the standard of God's law. But the standard of God's law requires a perfect life, which we don't have to offer. So the whole Old Testament was pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to live this perfect life, and that lamb without blemish was a representation of that perfect life that would be offered in our place on the altar of sacrifice. Slain. So you have the perfect life, in the unblemished lamb, and then you have the slain lamb. The slain lamb represents that Jesus Christ was to die for our sins. So you have the perfect life represented in the unblemished lamb, and then you have the slain lamb representing the death. The life and the death of Jesus is what Revelation 5 is pointing to. Revelation 5 is saying, there's no one in heaven, there's no one in earth, and there's no one under the earth that can save you, but the perfect life and the death Of Jesus. That's the Lamb that was slain. In a a sense, Revelation five and verse six is introducing us to Calvary. Where we see a consummation of Christ's perfect life and then his death on the cross. In a sense, in a real sense, Revelation chapter five is the cross. It's Calvary. You think about the book of Revelation. You think, well, there's there's no gospel in there. Some theologians actually believe and teach that there's no gospel in there. There's no Christ in there. There's no salvation in there. Salvation is in the very first verse: Jesus Christ come to save us from our sins by the power of God. And then, as you move through the book, you find this, these churches with all these frailties and imperfections. That's us. That's you. That's me. Laid to into the hilt, not even willing to, to 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 talk about it. Wanting to just cover it up and pretend we're okay when we're not. And then finally, you come to this picture of the fact that we can't save ourselves, but we can and are saved through the perfect life and the substitutionary death of Jesus, the lamb slain. And from that point on, that word, that symbol lamb is used 20, well, total of 29 times in the book of Revelation. 27 singular, 22 more in plural. The lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. And every time the book of Revelation is using the word lamb, the symbol lamb, it's talking about Calvary, 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 Calvary. And finally, you get to Revelation 14 the very first is following this great eschatological controversy over the mark of the beast and the enforcement of that mark so no man can buy or sell. And when you get to Revelation chapter 14, it gives you a little bit of a hint as to what God wants us to do in order to get out of that great controversy. How can we find deliverance? What are we supposed to do? How can we survive? Are we supposed to store food? Do we need to live in the country? Do we need to have guns and ammunition? Do we need to fight the bad guys? Do we need to run for the hills? What do we need to do? How can we survive? And Revelation 14 says, here are they that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I don't know if you remember the words of that hymn, but it says anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go anywhere. The question is asked and the response is anywhere. Fear I cannot know. The book of Revelation does propose to take us to some scary places in a sense because it's telling us about end-time events. And these events that began in John's time are culminating in ours. We're living in a time when stupendous events are before us. And God wants us to be ready. And sometimes we take it upon ourselves to figure out just how to do that. But there's one clear, direct message that is being communicated to us in the book of Revelation. And that message is, the way you're ready for those events, Is to follow the lamb. Anyone remember the next word? Wherever he goes. Wherever he goes. So Jesus. Wants to connect with you today. On his Sabbath. And every day. He wants you to follow him. He wants to show you about yourself. Seven churches. And about your remedy. The lamb. He wants to introduce himself to you as the savior. He did that in my life in 1984. Raised a Catholic, saying my ceremonial prayers every night, whether I was drunk or sober, going to church off and on, confession as much as I could, but never really knowing Jesus Christ, the Savior, through the power of God. Never understanding, accepting His perfect life and His substitutionary death as my own. And trusting in that instead of in myself. And allowing that to motivate me to live for Him. But in 1984, I began that journey. And I didn't know what it was about. I had no idea what it was about. I just accepted Christ and had an expectation. And 34 years later, that journey continues. And I don't feel that I'm any more righteous or any better. At times I have. But I know in my heart of hearts that I'm not any more righteous or any more better now, 34 years later, than I was when I started that journey. Just like John. John. When I see Jesus, I realize my selfishness and my failures, and I fall down as if dead. I have nothing to offer God, but I trust in Him. Ever always trusting in Him. And God is telling you, each one of you this morning, this is the journey that I want to take you on. Some of you have begun the journey, some of you haven't. Some of you have been distracted from that journey, from that gate, from the the place that God wants you to be. Others are stepping into it full force. Last night we had a covert baptism. (laughs) I want to say that because hardly anyone knew about it. But a young 30-year-old man was baptized last night who simply said, after many prayers and longings and wishings from parents and family and friends, who simply said, Wow, I don't know why I haven't done this sooner. I love Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. What was keeping me from this? And his answer was thinking that it was up to me to live this life. That it was up to me to get my act together. That I had to get my act together in order to come to Jesus. That's what he told me. He said, I finally realized I come to Jesus just the way I am. And I trust him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And pretty much that's everything. So God is calling us to trust in him this morning. As we close out this message, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. I don't want to close out this year without opening up an opportunity for those of you who are here, young or old, to respond to Christ, to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ, and to say, yes, I want to start this journey. I want my life to change. I want things to be different. I don't want to live the same way I've been living. And I certainly don't want the guilt that Jesus Christ has already taken resting upon me. I want Him to have it. I don't want to be free of it. Is that something that someone this morning wants to do, wants to say? If so, as we pray, I want you to just lift your hand to heaven. God will recognize every hand. And every heart. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank you this morning for giving us a Messiah, the one and the only one who lived that perfect life and died as our substitute and Savior. And Father, this morning there are hands that are going up. You know every heart, you know our need, you know our struggles. There are people who are saying, we want that commitment, that life, that heart that you promised us in your word. You want a transformation, and we don't know how to procure it, but you have promised to make that change in us. And so, Father, look at the hearts, look at the hands, and work in behalf of each one. And all of us who are on this journey, Father, continue to guide our steps, Take us through, as you did with this young man last night, to a realization that you're the one who begins and ends this work and that we put our trust in you. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.